save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Scared to Death is explicit in every way. Please take care while listening. Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no heart, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death. Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan. Hello, Dan. I'm Lindsay. Hello, Lindsay. I love your dress. It's very different. And you were saying it's very different. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to guess what country it's from, and it turns out I was close. I guessed uh, the Netherlands, uh-huh. and it's from Denmark. Yeah, from Copenhagen. And, Hoffman of Copenhagen. And it reminded me of, um, it's a small world after all. I know. It was pretty funny when you came home from the gym, because like, I have my hair up in a bun. And uh-huh. if I stand up, this dress is rather short, so it like bells out. And it's like, do-do-do. Yeah, anyone who's gone on those uh, that ride <laughs> at Disneyland. I, I don't know if they have a Disney World or not. But I don't, I'm not as familiar with Disney World. Whatever but, the one is in California. Yep, the Disneyland, where you take the little, like the little kitty ride, mm-hmm. and you get on the little boat, boat thing. Oh, God. Yep, and Slow River. It's a small world. And, and all have, the little countries, yeah. I have like the best memories of little baby Momo. Mm-hmm. I had like a very specific trip to Disney with her, and she was really into um, rompers, those like one piece. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I remember her little romper she wear. Yep, yeah. and she was... It was our first summer together, and she wanted to mimic me in every way possible. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. So she had to have messy buns, mm-hmm. and she had to mm-hmm. talk with this. her hands. And oh, yeah. So she would gesticulate unnecessarily. Yep. She'd say, can I have pancakes for breakfast? Yep, always lots, lots of hand motions. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> it was very cute. Oh, baby Momo. Uh, before I forget and get into uh, the, the stories uh, this week, we're excited to share some more uh, supposedly true horror with everyone listening, um, I watched The Night House last week on HBO Max or Go, whatever one. I think it's all one in the same now, um, right? Yeah, I, I, I can't remember. But, but I think it's Max, whatever the, is the most common one now. Sure. Um, and it's a, a 2021 horror slash psychological thriller. I thought it was excellent. I just love oh. those ones that um, I don't hear about. Uh-huh. And then I find them, I'm like, oh, this is great. 
Why so, love a psychological thriller? I think it is horror too. It's paranormal horror. Uh-huh. I would watch it again with you. Okay. I thought I thought it was really well done. I think you would like it. Okay. Well, actually, this weekend we're going to be traveling for shows, yeah. so maybe in a hotel. I'm okay. very much into watching it away from our house. Okay. Okay. And so I, I like to recommend good horror movies. Just anybody listening when I come across them. And this is the first movie in a very very long time that gave me a legit nightmare that I woke up, popped out of bed in like <gasps> a cold sweat. Like, At our house or no, in the hotel in Phoenix. First night, I was watching on the plane, going to do some shows. Oh, and thanks for the for the nice gifts. Uh, some of the fans got sent to the green room and at the improv in Tempe. Uh, Lindsay got some nice crystals. It's uh, very cool. But I I was watching on the plane and it was so it was like I was the weirdo on the plane doing like crazy jumps. Uh huh. That I thought other people were gonna like, what is that dude's problem? Like it was really getting <laughs> me. And that's just on my phone. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, I, f- I want to finish it, even though I got in late. I'm like, I want to finish it tonight. It's late at night. It- it'll ruin the atmosphere to watch it during the day. Right. And, and, s- and you just want to keep going. Yeah, but I want to keep going. And so I'm watching it just in a dark hotel room by myself. And it was it was legit creeping me out. Okay. And then I go to bed. And then I have some insane nightmare um, where something's after me. And it's coming down towards my face. And then this is the crazy thing. So then I pop out of bed. And then I'm see I'm seeing a glow. What to me in my mind looked like the some kind of crazy insect spider monster thing. What coming down from the ceiling is like glowing white. And then there's a moth, like a white moth, uh, flying in place by the window. Were you on drugs? Yes, uh, I was on weed. Oh uh, well, but but weed never makes me hallucinate. So I'm just like, what is going on? Um, and I turn I turn the lights on. Uh, it goes away. I turn the lights back off. Bless you. Uh, Thank you. Those things come back, and I'm like, "What is going on?" Was there something in the room that it was reflecting off of? Like it, a it took ref- me two fraction? days to figure it out. Oh my god! There was so so. I just thought there was something. I I, I legit thought I saw something for a full day, and I, and I was so I was pretty stoned, and I, <laughs> and I was tired. So I just like I'm like, well, it's not hurting me, and I just rolled over and went to bed. <laughs> just left it like knowing that it was still there. I'm like, well, it's, I'm it's not gonna hurt me, and then it was. A small crack in the blinds. There was some light from another building that was filtering through. Funny. When I saw it uh, not stoned two nights later, it did not look like a moth and a little bug. So I think my mind with the nightmare and everything kind of like changed it. But man, the thing got me. Um, And then uh, also, you got me so good unintentionally two mornings ago when you had your five. (laughs) Oh, my God. I go to a trainer at 5 a.m. This is like my new thing. Just started. So it's like new to our routine. I got up and I realized that I didn't have like a hoodie or anything and it was yeah. pretty cold. And I went to get, go to the bathroom. I heard you get up. I heard you use the restroom. And then you got I'm back. Also, and- I'm also stoned again. Oh, I, think I had right. an edible the night before. So I'm a little bit like more sleepy than normal. Yeah. And so I heard you, you know, go to the restroom. I heard you putz back into our bedroom. And then yeah. I was like, okay. And I thought that you heard me come down nope. the stairs behind you and I didn't realize. So then you were in bed, snuggled yeah. up and I was Holy in shit. our closet. I didn't turn a light on or anything. I just was like fumbling around in the dark. You had you had your cell phone light in the closet. You turned it on. E- but not even the flashlight, just like the glow of yeah. the screen. So w- the way it filtered through the closet door, which is like that- um, <laughs> We have like frosted uh, fa- glass. Frosted glass. It looked like a fucking orb, <laughs> like one of those floating orbs. And I was- You go, baby, are you in the room? And if you wouldn't, if you wouldn't have said yes, if you wanted to mess with me- 
I would have lost my shit. Oh, I would have, I would have, I would have ran out of the room. Like it, I, dang I, it. I legit thought for a few seconds that there was some kind of orb in the closet. Missed opportunity. Whew, so dang I, it. But then it was pretty funny. Two, two good scares this past week. Cause you were like pretty worked up and then I like rubbed you. I was like, baby, it's me. It's yeah. me. I promise you it's me. Everything's yeah. okay. Yeah. And then I went back to bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I just wanted to share. I had some good scares. So I'm in a good spooky state of mind right now. Okay, yeah. Sorry for all the chit-chat up top. But, but it's, it's pretty, but it's, but it's, it's horror relevant. Related. It's horror-related chit-chat, so not even sorry. It's horror-event. A <laughs> um, couple quick announcements, and then the show. Uh, um, and by the way, the stand-up thing, yeah, I, I don't talk about it much here, but you can go to dancummins.tv to see my stand-up dates, and I have some more coming up, because um, we do get a fair amount of scared-to-death fans we, going to the shows. We do, because I get mm-hmm. emails at scared-to-death. They're like, oh my God, tell Dan it was such a great show. Oh, he great. crushed it. We love him. Where were you? And just uh, like in trans- full transparency, we just don't talk about where I am or am not going for safety reasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Salt Lake City, Springfield, Missouri, Milwaukee, Davenport, Iowa, and Chicago coming up, and then a three-month summer Chicago. break. Chicago. Yeah. I love the Midwest. Yep. Be finishing the the spring, summer, and or spring dates in Chicago. Um, okay. So new merch in the Bad Magic store this week. Uh, brand new Wrong Turn Tee featuring the classic Where Are We situation. Finding yourself in a car, lost on a dark and lonely backwoods road. We've talked about several stories that way. Destined for impending horror. Uh, if that sounds like your vibe, you can check check it out at badmergic, badmagicmerch.com. <laughs> Badmergic. Badmergic. And uh, yeah, and grab it. It's Logan just, um, I love the variety he keeps for the various mm-hmm. shows we do. And within each show, keeps a lot of variety going, and it's uh, it's awesome. Yeah, he's so talented. We're so lucky to have him. Mm-hmm. And then I know you, um, if you want to hit the last April reminder for charity, you can. Yes, because the war in Ukraine rages on. Oh, my God, yeah. The never-ending war. Uh, so this month, our donation is going to Lifting Hands International. They provide aid to refugees both home and abroad, and we just loved their mission statement of no politics, simply humanitarian, and that speaks to us so deeply. Uh, they've been boots on the ground in Ukraine, helping provide meals and so much more. Uh, If you're looking for a way to help those in crisis in Ukraine, you can visit LiftingHandsInternational.org. Look for the Urgent Ukraine banner at the top. Our donation this month is for $14,000. Thank you to all of our patrons for making that possible. And we're putting an additional $1,550 aside for the scholarship fund yet to be named and more information coming on that as we develop it. Thank you. And now, can I preview my stories before you uh, preview yours? Of course. Okay. Uh, my first is a very creepy. I'm excited. I'm excited always about the stories, but um, some weeks, a little more than others. Maybe this week is one of those. Yeah. Where um, very creepy true crime slash paranormal combo. So a little warning for those who listen with their kids. Mm. Going to be talking about some of the crimes of one of America's most infamous serial killers, Ted Bundy. Ooh, yeah. Maybe not for kids. Uh, he rapes, tortured, killed, terrorized in real life. That we know for sure. Does his spirit continue to instill fear in the living from the afterlife? Sharing numerous paranormal experiences from numerous places, all attributed by many to the ghost of Ted Bundy. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, uh, different kind of tale for us. And then I'm going to take you to just outside of Kingman, Arizona, to explore the legend of Slaughterhouse Canyon. Did a horrible tragedy occurring there well over a century ago, a uh, century ago, lead to the canyon becoming intensely haunted. We'll examine the legend and a disturbing modern encounter tale. Now, what do you have for us today, Lulu? I have two awesome stories, per usual. Uh, Story number one is a possible haunting, a current possible haunting, at McDill Air Force Base uh, in one of the housing units. And I know that you've talked about Mm -hmm. McDill before, and so I kind of dig, like, is this confirmation? You know, when you have more than one sighting in one place, it 
definitely lends to the validity of the haunting. Mm -hmm. And then my second story, I am so into our second story. Okay. It is potentially one of my most favorites in recent times. Uh, when does an imaginary friend become more than an imaginary friend? Uh, are they really imagined or are they something else entirely? Mm -hmm. We explore this idea in story number two. I'm very into this because we've all either had imaginary friends, we have children who have them. It, this is a very commonly known thing, but what if they're not actually imaginary? Yeah, we've we've done some of those stories are some of my favorites. We've done some of those before where it's like a little kid is talking about their buddy. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, yeah, the parents at first are like, wow, whatever. And then my buddy. <laughs> oh my God. And then uh later on, the parents start to either see things themselves or hear hear things that the that the imaginary friend shouldn't know. Mm -hmm. Those stories, like I even get the chills right now. Those well, stories really creep me out. And this is a slightly different twist on it. So okay. I'm it's really it's a really great story and would definitely freak me out to this day. Okay. And now for my socks. Now, the stress <laughs> okay. is very short, so we're going to be very careful. Look at these Popsicle compression socks. If you know me, <laughs> Those are cool. the only socks I like more than a fuzzy sock is a compression sock. You do love a compression I sock. I do. I'm going to put these in my um, backpack for travel. Right now I have some polka dot ones, but these are better. Cool. Summer, summer sickles. Summer sickles. <laughs> All right. Uh, are you ready to acquaint yourself or reacquaint yourself with Ted Bundy? I am. Okay, well, you said a little bit of setup here, and it's kind of scary setup. Uh, Theodore Robert Bundy was arguably about as evil as it gets. Bundy came across as the all-American guy, good-looking, charismatic, and witty. He was well-educated and involved in the community. He was a law student at Washington State University and took an active role in the Republican Party. He volunteered taking calls for a suicide hotline and was good at, ironically, saving vulnerable people's lives. Uh, he was an intelligent man who seemed to have a bright future ahead of him. I'm going to correct myself. I had my notes, Washington State. I believe it was University of Washington. Okay. Not that yeah, everybody I, cares. I didn't think, well, I was like, I don't think that's right. Yeah, University. Uh, uh, but after being dumped by his college girlfriend, he was angry. So he carefully planned and carried out what he saw as a sophisticated plot for revenge. He outwardly appeared to become the man she had said he wasn't in order to win her back, and it worked. He spent the better part of a year successfully convincing the young woman to fall in love with him again, he proposed to her, she was elated and very much in love again, and she said yes. And then Ted, a true sociopath, ignored her. He pretended she didn't exist, as if the proposal never took place. But this petty and immature bit of revenge did not satisfy Ted like he hoped it would, and his anger towards not only this woman, but women in general grew. He spent an astonishingly, or he went on an astonishingly brutal murder spree between 1974 and 1978. Right away, he found out that killing sexually excited him uh, greatly. He developed quite the taste for blood, young women's blood. He would select college-aged women, typically with a passing resemblance uh, to his ex-girlfriend, and he'd kidnap them, rape them, murder them, and then dump their bodies in isolated locations, often in the mountains, where he would sometimes return to visit the corpses and further defile them. His crimes took him across the U.S. from Washington, Oregon, Utah, Idaho, and Colorado, all the way to Florida after his second prison escape. In Florida, Bundy ended up in Tallahassee, where he committed the infamous Chi Omega Sorority House Massacre. Oh, yeah. Severely beating four women and killing two in a 15-minute frenzy of bloodlust before fleeing and then brutally attacking another woman eight blocks away. The following month, he raped and murdered 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. All in all, before being caught, he was suspected of killing at least 36 women. And then, over 19, and then over 13 years after being apprehended for the last time, on January 24th, 1989, Bundy was executed via the electric chair. 
Millions collectively breathed a sigh of relief, spent the day celebrating, believing they were free of Theodore Robert Bundy. But maybe Bundy didn't completely go away after his body was declared dead. Perhaps just as he did in life, Ted's spirit has traveled. Numerous paranormal sightings and experiences reported in places he frequented frequented, have been attributed to his spirit. Time now for the tale of Ted Bundy's ghost. In 1955, when Ted was nine years old, his family moved into a small single-family home in Tacoma, Washington. The house was built in 1946, the year Bundy was born. Over half a century later, in September of 2016, a man named David Trong purchased the house to flip it, and he hired Casey Clopton, a contractor, the following month. And Clopton later said in in an interview, I'm not one to believe in a lot of this stuff, but this house made me a believer. Clopton said he had no idea Bundy once lived in the home when he started working on it. He just immediately after entering for the first time, thought the place felt off. Reportedly, every time Casey and his employees and subcontractors re-entered the house after working on it the day before, they found all the interior doors and all the cabinets to be open, despite feeling confident they had locked the place before leaving the night before, despite being certain no cabinets had been left open and the doors had been shut. Additionally, electronics would suddenly have their batteries dramatically drain, malfunction, or die. Dressers were heard falling over. Drawers, other furniture items were heard moving around on their own. And the atmosphere in the house was thick and heavy. And extra creepy, Clopton's young daughter, who normally loved to visit job sites with her father, refused to go into the house. When she was forced to, she would burst into tears and beg to leave. Clopton tried to ignore everything that was happening and just finish the job. That got harder when strange messages began appearing, written in drywall dust all around the house. One message written on a window in a basement said, help me. Another message written in dust on a bedroom floor said, leave. Clopton wanted to believe these messages were not the work of the paranormal. He thought maybe someone was breaking into his job site after hours. But then after talking to some neighbors, Clopton learned that some 50 years earlier, a young Ted Bundy had called the house his home, and many thought he committed his first murder there, never was charged with this, at the age of just 14, a nine-year-old girl named Anne-Marie Burr. Now Clopton was worried that there was some sort of restless spirit in the house and he worried that it was the ghost of one of America's most notorious serial killers. Armed with this new knowledge, Clopton called in the church. Two pastors ended up coming over and praying to cleanse the house. The workers present were instructed to play Christian music in the background and write Bible verses on the walls, and they did. Clopton said, everything in that house fought with us. And I was kind of weird about it, but I go to church and I have God with me. The remodeled house was eventually sold to unidentified owners. No word on what they might be experiencing now, if anything. One of Ted uh, Ted Bundy's victims, possibly Bundy himself, is believed to haunt Viewmont High School in Bountiful, Utah. Bountiful. On November 8th, 1974, 17-year-old Deborah Kent was at Viewmont High School with her parents watching a play. She left during intermission to pick up her brother from an ice skating rink, and she was never seen again. Bundy abducted and murdered her as she was leaving the school. 36 hours before Bundy was executed, he confessed to killing Deborah and told the police where her body was. Her remains, buried up in a remote area in Fruit Heights, Utah, weren't found until 2015. Some people have reported seeing the ghost of a young girl being dragged out of the building. Others claim they've seen Bundy's tan Volkswagen bug in the parking lot. These incidents usually occur on or around November 8th each year. Dante's Bar in the University District of Seattle was a favorite stalking ground of Ted's. 
He liked to sit in one particular booth in a far corner with a perfect vantage point to see the whole place. Ted would sit here and drink and watch women. The booth has since been transformed into a DJ booth. It was at Dante's that Bundy first spotted and then stalked Linda Ann Healy. Healy vanished from the U District January of 1974, and she was reportedly seen at Dante's the night she disappeared. It has been claimed for many years that Ted's ghost still hangs around the bar. People have reported feeling a breath on their neck or hearing very dull, almost inaudible whispering in the booth. These phenomena seem to affect attractive young women almost exclusively and make them feel extremely uncomfortable. Just being in that area has led to many of them having feelings of deep-rooted fear. Perhaps the most infamous of Ted's alleged afterlife haunts is the so-called Ritual House in Bountiful, Utah. Zach Baggins of Ghost Adventures went to investigate these claims as part of his 2019 series, Serial Killer Spirits. Ted Bundy abducted Deborah Kent, later admitted to taking her to his house, keeping her there for 24 hours, but no one knows where he murdered her. Many believe that Bundy killed her at the abandoned ritual house. This house was supposedly a known location for satanic rituals. When the Ghost Adventures crew explored it, Zach Baggins described the house as nothing but a portal to hell. Although there, was, although there was no electricity at the home, the researchers still got high electromagnetic readings on the center of a pentagram circle graffitied inside the house. The team left the house terrified. They heard disembodied voices. Some of them were pushed. One man claimed to feel the sensation of a needle being driven into his back. Baggins later said in an interview with Esquire, I couldn't tell you exactly it was Ted Bundy, but there was an evil presence there. At times it felt like I could feel him there, but at the same time, we're trying to contact him. All I know is that we encountered just pure evil. I mean, we encountered demons, and that's what he was, so it's hard to state, oh, this was definitely Ted. 2001. A retired guard, who worked at the Florida State Prison where Ted Bundy was executed, told a Tampa newspaper reporter a disturbing and chilling story. He requested his name be kept private. The guard said that after Bundy was put to death, he and several other guards saw Bundy in the execution chamber. He said they saw Bundy just sitting in the electric chair casually, as if he was still alive, also not strapped in. He said that Bundy would smile a knowing smile as a greeting when they entered the room, but then when he or his fellow guards tried to speak to Bundy or approach, he'd vanish. He also stated that at one point there were so many sightings of Bundy in the execution chamber that prison officials couldn't find any guards willing to enter the room alone. Bundy has also supposedly been seen by several guards near the holding cell, where he was kept for the last few hours of his life. Some guards that reported seeing him here uh, stated that Bundy asked them all the same question. Well, I beat you all, didn't I? And that, if true, absolutely terrifying. Because so many guards saw Bundy and reported it, the warden and his staff supposedly pulled each of them aside individually, warned them they were not to talk about what they'd seen or they'd be fired. They were freaking out other staff and the inmates. Several guards didn't stay around long enough to hear the warden's warning. After seeing Bundy more than once, they quit. In May of 2013, Bundy showed up again at the prison. An inmate saw him and reported in an interview, For many years I heard the rumors of Ted Bundy's ghost appearing and I didn't believe it. Now my mind has changed. I and other residents, including staff, have witnessed the ghost on many occasions. It is definitely Bundy. It comes in the early morning before dawn in our housing unit and in different cells. He's always smiling. It's a white-blue mist, but very detailed. Some of the other residents claim to hear him talking. I have not heard that yet. These are just a few of many, many sightings. There are more stories from the Northgate Mall. Sightings have also been reported in the mountains surrounding uh, Washington State, where Bundy's ashes are said to be scattered in accordance with his will. There's speculation that Bundy was in contact with paranormal forces before he died as well. Was he possessed? 
Before his execution, Bundy referred to an entity or malignant beam as the driving force behind the murders. Journalists Stephen G. Mashad and Hugh Ainsworth, who interviewed Bundy on death row, noted that he often referred to himself in the third person when he spoke, as if separating himself from the murderous acts he committed. For example, Bundy is quoted as saying, The early manifestations of this condition, which is an interest concerning sexual images, your standard fare that you'd see in a movie house or a Playboy magazine, the interest becomes skewed towards a more specialized literature, some of it pretty grotesque, which would preoccupy him more and more. It would reach a point where the anger, the frustration, the anxiety, the poor self-image, feeling cheated, wronged, insecure, he decides upon young, attractive women being his victims. In their book, The Only Living Witnesses, they wrote that Bundy referred to this entity as a hybrid situation. The entity was, quote, in him and of him, a purely destructive power that grew from within. This entity was only satisfied by possessing victims. Bundy referred to himself in the third person again when describing a murder. One particular evening, he was driving down a fairly dark street and saw a girl walking along the street, and he parked his car and ran up behind the girl and she heard him. She turned around and he brandished a knife and grabbed her by the arm and told her to do what he wanted her to do. Let's say he placed his hands around her throat just to throttle her into unconsciousness so she wouldn't scream anymore. When the need of that malignant condition had been satisfied through sexual release, he realized that he couldn't let the girl go. So killing, to a degree, will become a way of destroying evidence, but the act of killing becomes an end in itself. Bundy also addressed the entity in a call to his girlfriend, Elizabeth Klopfer. After his arrest in Florida in 1978, he got a deal where he was allowed to speak to her on the phone, and he told her he was controlled by an outside force. Elizabeth said, he told me that he was sick and that he was consumed by something that he didn't understand and that, um, that it, that he just couldn't contain it. He spent so much time trying to maintain a normal life and he just couldn't do it. He said that he was preoccupied with this force. Many believe that this entity was just a form of mental illness and Bundy was diagnosed with mental illness, but it was manic depression, not schizophrenia, disassociative identity disorder, or any other mental illness that causes psychosis. Was Bundy also possessed by some sort of demon driven to kill? We'll never know for sure, but strange reports of his energy or spirit showing up in so many different places, causing so much fear, makes one wonder. The ghost of Ted Bundy definitely lingers in popular media in the lives and stories of his victims and their families. Does his actual ghost still linger in the physical world as well? I cannot believe that I never considered the option. Oh, there it is. <laughs> we were looking for that everywhere. Yeah, little notebook. I can't believe that I never considered the option that a serial killer could be could come back and haunt us. Because any yeah. of us, I mean, the premise of this entire show is that anything is possible, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like you can die, you can come back. You're not a serial killer. Yeah. Like, you know, you you think that like, oh, maybe like your Papa Ward's hanging around or mm -hmm. like my grandma. Of course Ted Bundy could hang around. Yeah. And that would be so extra terrifying. And I think I'm not 100%, but I'm 99% sure that we'll have another one coming down the road at some point. I believe uh, Sarah Finch, one of our researchers, talked about like looking into stories around like John Wayne Gacy, Ooh. who's uh, especially creepy, another serial killer. He Pogo the Clown. I know. I immediately, yeah. like, my I don't have a fear of clowns, but you say his name and I become afraid of clowns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He didn't help the clown image. I, uh, when you were talking about Bundy, uh, where did he go? Wazoo? Or well, I, that was in the notes, and I, I didn't catch that earlier. Um, 
one of our, uh, yeah, I, I think that was not correct because I've looked into him before. Yeah. And I'm 99.9% sure it was uh, University of Washington. Okay, UW. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Gary Ridgway, also a Washington killer. Oh, yeah, killer. the Green River like, killer, one like, of the most wh- prolific ever. I know. Why are there so many killers in Washington? Oh yeah, and there's been and there's been numerous other like I think Washington got really known for it because uh Green you know, the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgeway, and then Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. the two of the most prolific. Right, right. And then there's that weird like culty and there was like some like compoundy, like a really oh shoot. I know you did a time suck on it, but it was In Washington? Yeah. Well there was one there's one that there's an active one that I haven't done. No, it's not that. It's one you've done. Oh it doesn't matter. We could yeah. I mean, we could, you know, go off on that, but I just like became obsessed with like, what is going on over there? Because then also like the Northwest is known for Sasquatch. (laughs) I I don't know. Is it just like a breeding ground for paranormal and bizarre and right? I mean, that's kind of like the Northwest's thing. Like we're weird over here. (laughs) And there's something, I I mean. Something in the water? Well, if I wanted to be like, you know, the, the skeptical version of it, it, it's just the weather where it's like on west of the Cascades, on western yeah. Washington, it's so gray mm-hmm. and rainy and just thick depressing. forests. <laughs> well, depressing also, but then also if you're doing, cre- okay. Oh, I see. Visual wise, it's harder, you know, if it's like a mist in this wet forest, very lush, thick forest. It, it, it can play with it can play tricks in your mind where you can like see things on like the Sasquatch kind yeah, of angle. Yeah. But then also if you're looking like these body disposal sites where these serial killers would go, it's like there's it's much easier to dispose of a body secretly in a thick pine forest filled with lots of brush in western mm-hmm. Washington than it would be in say an open uh, plain in Ohio. Yep, exactly, exactly. Just visibility. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. And yeah, it's just dark and dreary. I'm not laughing, but I'm laughing. A body disposal site. That sounds like the, like the PC version of like where they dumped the bodies. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is that like a thing? Um, I think dumping ground is what they tend to call it in true crime. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. But also, yeah, the technical, I mean, not technical, but I think it will be referred to maybe by law enforcement more as like, mm-hmm. a, you know, disposal, disposal site. site. Mm-hmm. But fascinating. <laughs> uh, so, you know, concentrated killings, scary stuff in Washington. Yeah. So I kind of like went that way for a while. But then the the thought of him, so uh, two things to address, yeah. his spirit coming back and scaring the guards, mm-hmm. that feels particularly sinister to me and uncomfortable because to be a prison guard, you cannot be a wimp. <laughs> right, like, right. You're, you're yeah, generally yeah. a bigger person because you have to be able to stand your ground. And I don't like that, whether that means tall or built or just like a wide brick house. Kind, of, You know what I mean? Just like Or at least have a formidable. strong presence. You, right. You yeah. need to have this like formidable, like yeah. you can't fuck with me kind of. Mm. So for people to see him, hear him, uh, quit because of it, that feels like, okay, yeah. multiple people time yeah. and time again. And then this whole thing about like his mental illness, I wrote that down before you said it's like, yeah, like I don't think you were possessed by mm-hmm, some mm-hmm. demonic force. I think that you were mentally ill, and that is the saddest part about all of it. Well, and there's another angle too that you know I didn't bring up in the story that is, tends to be what what I believe in a lot of these cases. Just over on time, suck so like having done so much true crime and being fascinated with it before is it's um, a rationalization. A lot of people just don't mm-hmm. want to see themselves as a bad person. Uh, they would rather see themselves as a victim, like a lot of like serial killers. Mm-hmm very rare for them to take full accountability for their actions. It does happen sometimes, 
but often it's like a, a almost like a coping mechanism of like, well, well, I didn't do it. It was this dark passenger of sorts. Yeah, yeah. It was this burden of mine, and it's like, and they and they and they will refer to themselves as a third person in numerous cases because I think it, it provides some moral distance. Mm-hmm. Well, that wasn't me, me. Mm-hmm. That was this sick version of me. But then, and I will say, Bundy in particular incredibly manipulative very intelligent so charismatic and very manipulative and you know some of these it's amazing how they're able to wrap the psychologists and psychiatrists mm-hmm. around their finger and 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 you know to try to like force a diagnosis uh often during the trial mm-hmm. so they don't get the same sentence right and then usually once they're sentenced towards the end a lot of those people are they get a lot more honest because like the gig's up Right. Like uh, you're going to die or you're, or you're never getting out. Right, right. So then they're right. a little more honest. Yeah, that was, that was really fascinating. Creepy. Yeah. Really fascinating. I have a few pics. Uh, this first picture is just, you know, a young ten, Ted Bundy in court. I know. He was so handsome. He wasn't, yeah. And he That's was not my look, but like definitely a handsome guy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Great, great set of hair and uh-huh. good jawline, all the things. Uh, did you watch the Zac Efron one? I did not. It was good. I heard it was good. Yeah. I mean, finally, I didn't think of him as being in like a high school musical. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I need to see that. Uh, this next one, creepy pick, uh, it's shown around a lot of Ted Bunny screaming in court. You know, uh-huh. he, he helped with his own defense. I was just going to say that's like his own trial. Uh, mm-hmm. He acting as his own lawyer. I, I might redo him. I did him early on in Time Suck and didn't go in depth, but it's fascinating where it's like he escaped from prison twice. I know. He like has incarceration, like, jail, I think was the once, but yeah. He has uh, like El Chapo type qualities to him, in my opinion. And no one was helping him like with like El Chapo. No. It's like- uh, I know he's got a whole network. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, and, and these pictures, by the way, at Scared to Death Podcast, Instagram and uh, Facebook, if you want to you know, look along while we're li- while you're listening. This next one, the supposed ritual house that Bundy's spirit may still haunt in Bountiful, Utah. Excuse me, what is growing on that house? Well, it's abandoned, derelict oh, house, and okay. it's like some ivy or something is growing all over the front of it. And there's like, you know, there's half the shingles are gone on the roof. Well, yeah, the roof is jacked, but I don't know that I've ever seen ivy grow because it, it looks so thick and lush. Mm-hmm. It looks like a forest. Yep, yeah, just all over the front too, covering the windows. That's and, creepy. And then this is a, a different photo of Bundy here uh, going by his alias. Al- Actually, it has nothing to do oh with this. Oh, my God. I, I just, it made me think oh. Bundy, made me think of Alan Peggy Bundy. And I hadn't thought of Married with Children forever. I loved that show. Me too. Christina Applegate. Such, yeah. Yeah, it was such a good show. And then Peg Bundy. Okay, what is her real name? Oh, well, she went on to play in Sons of Anarchy. Yeah, Kurt oh, my Sutter's. God. Kurt Sutter's. I mean, I hate to describe her as like Kurt Sutter's wife because she actually has more of a career than <laughs> – nothing against Kurt Sutter. <laughs> nope. I'm just laughing because of uh intimate yeah. conversation that we had yeah. last night about like when you are the counterpart to someone successful. It's like, you know, yeah. she's so-and-so's wife. Right. And or, it, it, yeah. would be, it would be more apt to describe uh, Kurt Sutter as her husband Oh my! because she's had a longer – K- Katie Seagal. Nice. Boom. Katie Seagal. That's exactly who it is. She is, I think, around 70 years old, too. No. Mm-hmm. She did Sons of Anarchy, like, in her 60s. Uh, she and, looks and had, great. She does. She and does. just, like, such a powerful force still. I mean— She's a great actress. She has that, like, Betty White component of, like, uh, such a, a presence, you mm. know? Like, she's not withering away on the sidelines. No, not at all. Good for her. Uh, now it is time to leave the world of true crime, kind of. I guess the legend of Slaughterhouse does involve an alleged crime. Horrible one, so never mind. Uh, so now time for more crime. Crime, crime, crime. <laughs> Leading to a haunting. <laughs> right after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What are the things that weigh you down on a day-to-day basis? What kind of stress are you holding on to? Do you spend much of your day going over things in your brain over and over until they are so distracting it affects your mental health? Well, don't worry. 
you're not alone. We all carry different stressors, some big, some small. When we keep things bottled up, the results can be negative. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest without fear or judgment. It's a place to work through what is heavy on your mind and heart so that you can feel lighter and happier. I'm always holding on to something. It's the way my anxious brain works. I'm continually worried that I've done something wrong, that I've hurt the feelings of someone I love, and that I have let someone down. I'm stressed that I'm not being a good enough mom or wife. I panic that our life will implode at any given moment and it'll all be my fault. Thankfully, I have an amazing therapist who helps me talk through each of these scenarios. After each and every appointment, I feel lighter, happier, and more capable of showing up as my most authentic self. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash scared to death today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash scared to death. Summer is just around the corner. Who's excited? I know I am. With the warmer, sunnier days calling your name, the last place you're going to want to be is in your kitchen, cooking and meal prepping. Make your life easier with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Factors Never Frozen, Always Fresh Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Think of all the extra time you will get outside in the summer sun when you aren't wasting hours in the kitchen. I think I speak for everyone when I say that the summer is the busiest time of the year. We are all trying to cram in as many things as possible, from concerts to vacations and everything in between. With Kyler home from college and Monroe on her break too, I want to spend as much time as possible with them. And while I truly love to cook, the summer is the one time of year that I'm the least interested in doing that for three meals a day. So I lean on Factor to help keep me healthy and in step with my diet. I'm obsessed with the honey yogurt pancakes for breakfast, the pork El Pastor for lunch, and the cilantro lime barramundi for dinner. So easy and saves me so much time. Head to factormeals.com slash scared to death 50 and use code scared to death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code scared to death 50 at factormeals.com slash scared to death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Saving money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. Save big money at Thanks for listening to those sponsors, Creeps and Peepers. Okay, headed to Arizona for this story. Uh, We've been to Arizona before, uh, no stranger to hauntings. Uh, We covered an episode 29, long time ago, the haunted Monte Vista Hotel in Flagstaff. Uh, This time, instead of a hotel, we're stepping into the vast wilderness where something horrible happened over a century ago and may still be haunting people today. Known to some as Slaughterhouse Canyon for the horrific events that uh, supposedly took place there. This natural formation is actually named Luana's Canyon and is situated just southeast of Kingman, Arizona. Like many towns in the West, Kingman was a typical stop on the way to better fortunes for people, uh, they hoped, uh, on the West Coast. Established in 1882 before Arizona achieved statehood, Kingman had its modest beginnings as a simple railroad stop near Beale Springs. Springs been used by uh, Native Americans living in the area for centuries. Then during World War II, Kingman was the site of a U.S. Army Air Force airfield. It became one of the largest, training some 35,000 soldiers and airmen. Following the war, the Kingman airfield served as one of the nation's largest reclamation sites for obsolete military aircraft. 
Post-war, Kingman experienced growth as several major employers moved into the vicinity. But back in the 1800s, Kingman, and what would eventually become known as Slaughterhouse Canyon, desolate and isolated. Only a few scattered families had settled the area, and one settled at the bottom of Slaughterhouse Canyon, hoping the shadows would provide them some relief from the powerful burning sun overhead. The father in this family hoped he'd find gold deep in the canyon, but as the months passed, as his digging continued to be fruitless, he started hoping just to find enough food to make it through the next few days. The family got used to seeing their father disappear for days at a time, going hunting or scavenging, and they were always hungry and relieved when they saw him crest the hill on horseback. Supplies were always returning, uh, were always running low in his absence. In the beginning, the father would only leave for three or four days at a time, but soon these trips stretched to days and even weeks. And then one day, he didn't return at all. Was he simply lost to the vast landscape of the American West? Did he stumble across a pack of wild animals or bandits? Or did something else get him? Something that maybe had been living in those canyons for centuries. We'll probably never know. What we do know is that his family was left entirely without food or support, alone on the brutal and unforgiving desert frontier. The mother and children waited patiently for the man to return, their food supply running lower and lower. They didn't have much choice other than to wait. He'd taken any guns they had, they had no money to buy anything at the nearest trading post, and they had no quick way to get to the nearest trading post as he'd taken their last good horse. They also didn't have any crops growing out in the desert around them, but they did have water. So they waited and waited and waited as the last morsels of their food supplies vanished. Soon they were truly starving. Desperate for their father to return, the children would cry and shout his name into the canyon, which hollowly echoed their fruitless cries back to them. Soon their voices became incomprehensible, no longer shouting their father's name, but merely primal cries of hunger, doubled over and over again, screaming in agony until they'd fall asleep, only to wake up later, screaming some more. But the screams grew weaker, as what little strength they had left, uh, had left steadily was sapping away. Finally, their mother, mad with hunger herself, couldn't take the cries anymore, and her mind broke. Thinking a good, quick death was better than starving slowly, unable to withstand the cries of her children for hours every day and longer, she murdered her children with a knife, and then she cut them up into little pieces. Oh, God. The woman, now completely mad, she carried what was left of her children down to the edge of the river and tossed them in. She collapsed in a blood-soaked heap, began to wail loudly for all that she had done, all that she had endured and lost. She was overcome with sadness, guilt, and the pain of her isolated and violent ex existence, and she would succumb to starvation herself the next morning, crying for the children she'd murdered with her, la with her last breaths. How do we know any of this occurred uh, if there was no one to witness this mis misery? <clears throat> Excuse me. We don't. We just know that this is the legend of Slaughterhouse Canyon. Maybe it never happened. Hopefully it never happened. What a terrible way to die. Or maybe it did. And maybe that's why some people say you can still hear her cries and the cries of her children echoing through Slaughterhouse Canyon today. And a few of these people would experience more than just wails of the long dead when they decided to visit Slaughterhouse Canyon several years ago. Time now for the tale of Slaughterhouse Canyon. Though they'd come to Arizona for the Grand Canyon, it was Slaughterhouse Canyon that really piqued Clayton and Dean's interests. Mid-pandemic, the two young men had decided to go on a national parks tour through the West, hitting up Yellowstone, the Tetons, Arches, and finally the Grand Canyon before heading home. At least that was their original plan. But after a search on the internet turned up Slaughterhouse Canyon, Dean got really excited and wanted to change the plan up. A bit more of a paranormal enthusiast than his friend, Clayton, who was mostly along for the hikes and the good views, Dean quickly convinced him to extend their trip by just a night or two enough time to drive the 100 miles or so from Las Vegas and explore Slaughterhouse Canyon. 
Clayton was a little hesitant, but once Dean started talking about how all the parks they'd been to were so touristy, full of people in fanny packs, crowded around public bathrooms, taking pictures with their phone more than looking at the actual landscape, he agreed. It'd be a nice change of pace, he thought. And it would be a nice change of pace. Or sorry, and it would be a change of pace, just not a nice one at all. As they drove through Kingman in Clayton's truck, Dean stared out the window, wondering if he'd made the right choice. They weren't experienced campers after all. They were city guys. A campground in a national park with access to showers and designated parking spots was a lot different than sleeping out under the stars. And they'd be arriving well after sunset. What if something happened and they got lost? As though sensing his thoughts, Clayton said, Moon's really bright tonight. I guess that's a good thing, right? Easier to see. For sure, Dean said. But something about the moon being bright didn't sit with him the way it should have. It should have been reassuring, but looking around, he saw the brightness of the moon illuminating each and every shadow of the canyons, throwing parts into sharp relief while inlets and crannies were still shrouded in darkness. There was no way to tell what might be out there, what might be watching them. And we're here, Clayton said, turning off the narrow road they'd been driving down parallel to some train tracks. Dean nodded and hopped out of the truck. The two then walked for a while, maybe a hundred yards, maybe half a mile, far enough for them to find a nice spot far from the road and flat enough to sleep on. The landscape was beautiful, cliffs rising around them, a dry riverbed snaking through the bottom of the canyon, no tourists with cell phones in sight. That was supposed to be a good thing. So why was Dean missing others being around? They set up their sleeping bags on top of a tarp. When Dean tossed Clayton some stakes to keep the tarp down, one of them sailed past him and tumbled out into the darkness. I got it, Clayton said, running after the stake. A few moments later, Dean heard him go, Huh. What's up? Dean called. Get back over here, man. Could be rattlesnakes or something out there. No, not rattlesnakes, Clayton said, returning to the laid out tarp. He was holding something in his hands, examining it carefully. And when he looked up, he said, Need a new knife? What? Look, Clayton said. He showed Dean the blade, a rough, serrated edge, not much more than a piece of a big piece of sharp metal, like a butcher's knife. Something someone would use to carve up an animal. It was rusty, and it looked like it had been lost to the elements for a long time. Whoa, Dean said. Wonder how long that's been laying there. It's old, Clayton said. Really old. He shrugged, looked back into the crevice where he'd found it. Well, I guess we should leave it, right? Take only pictures, leave only footprints, you know? Yeah, Dean nodded. He knew there were probably tons of lost things in the desert, sunglasses people had forgotten, camping supplies, whatever. But something about the knife, the way it glinted in the moonlight, made him wary. For some reason, he had the feeling that it hadn't just been used to butcher animals. From what he read, there hadn't been any farms out here, being as there was no grass for animals to graze on. All right, then, Clayton said, shrugging. Then before Dean could say anything else, he tossed the knife back out into the darkness. They didn't see it land, but heard the clang of it echo through the canyon, strangely louder than any sound they'd yet heard, even their own voices. Spooky, Dean said, laughing himself a little. He was trying to shake off the feeling that they just disturbed something that they'd just thrown something off balance, something that hadn't been disturbed in years, maybe decades, or woke something up that was better off, much better off, left resting. Want a beer? Clayton said, interrupting Dean's racing thoughts. Early night? Maybe see or hear a ghost in an early morning, get in a nice hike in the sunshine, shake off anything spooky, and then get the hell out of here. Yeah, Dean said. Sounds good. Would they see a ghost? He wanted to when they'd planned on coming here, when he pushed for coming here. It was why he'd picked it. Now he wasn't so sure. He needed a drink. Maybe two weeks of camping and hiking was starting to wear on him. He didn't know uh, that they would never go on that hike. That by the time the sun came up, hiking would be the furthest thing from their minds. After a couple beers, Dean and Clayton settled in for the night, but Dean couldn't sleep. 
That feeling of having disturbed something was stronger than ever, and he tossed and turned, the rocks below poking uncomfortably into his back. And then the noises started. They started with a soft, distant cry, and then another. At first, Dean thought that Clayton was having some kind of nightmare, before realizing that Clayton was sound asleep beside him, not moving. And the sounds weren't coming from something that close. More like they were coming from someplace around the corner of the canyon. With a start, Dean realized they were growing louder. Ah! Dean wondered if it was an animal. They'd heard coyotes before, but this didn't sound like an animal. It sounded like a person. Dude, wake up, Dean said, shaking Clayton's arm. I think someone's in trouble. What? Clayton's eyes opened, his gaze fuzzy. You're in trouble? Not me, Dean said. Listen, I think someone might be stuck out there or something. They listened for a moment. It was silent for an unbearably long stretch, and then abruptly they heard it again. Ah! A guttural scream. Shit, Clayton said, scrambling up. What do we do? They had no experience with stuff like this. There were city guys in their life experience. There was nothing that dictated how they should help someone in the middle of a desert in the middle of the night. Even if it is someone, Dean thought. And then he wondered why he thought that. Uh, come on, Clayton said. We gotta help. Uh, what if they're in serious trouble? They slipped in their shoes and began creeping over uh, to where they thought the sound was coming from, a shadowy enclave about 100 yards away. Dean's heart hammered as the sounds grew louder. Ow, shit! Dean whipped around. It was Clayton bent over holding his foot, the long knife sticking out of the sole of his shoe, sliced straight through the rubber. Dean didn't know what had happened. If he, uh, Dean didn't know how that had happened. If he remembered correctly, Clayton had thrown the knife in the opposite direction, and he didn't know how it could have stood up and how Clayton couldn't have seen it before stepping on it. But he couldn't think about that now. Clayton was doubled over. Fuck, dude, fuck, he chanted. His eyes screwed shut in pain. I think it got to the bone. Shit, shit. Here, sit down, Dean said. I think we have some supplies in the car. Oh, shit. He didn't want to leave Clayton alone, and the car was at least a couple hundred yards back, if not more, but there was no choice. Clayton couldn't walk, and Dean didn't want to move him with the blade still stuck in his food. I'll be right back, he promised, and took back off in the direction of the car. Now the sound of Clayton's groans of pain were mingling with the sound of distant screams echoing off the walls of the cliffs. Dean tried to focus on his task, even though his heart was pounding and everything was telling him to grab Clayton, drive to an urgent care in Kingman, and get the fuck out of there. When he finally made it within sight of the car, he breathed a sigh of relief and then stopped in his tracks. The car's headlights were on. Clayton never left the car's headlights on. He knew better than to accidentally drain the battery when they were in the middle of nowhere. Dean went to the driver's side, opened the door, praying that the first aid kit would be where it always was, in the driver's side door compartment. And as his fingers cr closed around the plastic box, he heard a sound from the other side of the car, on the passenger side window. Tap, 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 tap. He looked up. Nothing there. But then something grabbed him from behind, what felt like dry, brittle fingers pressing into his neck and his back, and he felt a flash of pain in his side. When he looked down, he saw blood coming through his t-shirt, even though the t-shirt itself was not torn. Whatever it was was holding on to him so hard he thought he might pass out, and then twisting around, Dean was able to make out a frozen mouth opened in a howl of pain and a matted mop of brittle brown hair. He yelled in pain and turned to bash his back and whatever was attacking him against the back of the car. But when he did, his back collided with the car, knocking him out of breath. The thing had vanished. And then Dean lifted his eyes to the desert landscape in front of him and saw the woman who had just attacked him standing just a few feet away. The knife from before held up in her outstretched hands, her gaunt, haunted face fixed in a hideous smile, blood pouring from her mouth. And then she disappeared again. And in the distance, Clayton's piercing howl echoed through the canyon. Dean took off running, operating purely on instinct. He didn't know what he was seeing, what was happening, but he knew he had to save his friend. When he rounded the last canyon corner before he saw... 
Before where they'd made camp, he saw Clayton laying on the ground, blood soaked through his t-shirt and slashes, and as Dean watched, horrified, new slashes appeared, each one seeming deeper than the last. Help me! Clayton gurgled. She's going, she's going to kill me! She said it's for my own good! No! Dean yelled, springing forward, his hand closed around Clayton's, and he grunted as he lifted Clayton to his feet, most of his weight on Dean's side. When they turned around, the woman was blocking their path, her hair rising as though it was full of static, and a low, hoarse whisper, Dean heard her speak. We all die out here. Sooner or later, we all die out here. I, I can make it quick. Let Mama make it quick. Run! Dean screamed. Even though he knew it was useless, Clayton couldn't run. He could barely walk. They were going to die out here, Dean thought, just like the woman said. Then before they could move, something new happened. The wailing in the canyon intensified, growing louder, a chorus of voices. Voices that sounded different, like the voices of young children. And the woman sank to her knees, moaning. No! She screamed. Stop! You're safe now! Mama made you safe! But the children's screams didn't stop, and they seemed to paralyze the woman. With all the effort that remained in his body, Dean hoisted Clayton up, started to drag him forward. Later, he wouldn't remember how long it took them to get to the car or how long they drove in the night before they arrived at a hospital where a babbling Clayton told doctors they'd been attacked and the doctors gave them both deeply skeptical looks. He looked skeptically at them because their wounds had disappeared. What? Most of them anyway. There was no blood on their clothing, no cuts on their bodies other than the knife wound at the bottom of Clayton's foot. But there were what looked like little scars, scars they knew hadn't been there before. It was real. Whatever it was they'd experienced, it was real. Clayton had screamed that a woman was attacking him before Dean had ever had the chance to tell him that he'd been attacked by a woman too. The same woman. They both saw her. They both experienced something intensely paranormal. They both believed fully now in the legend of Slaughterhouse Canyon, even if they knew that no one else who hadn't seen what they'd seen, heard what they'd heard, and felt what they'd felt would also believe it. That is wild. Can you imagine, like... It's me and you. We're camping. I'm fucking desecrated oh and God. cuts and I'm bleeding. And you're, no. you're racing to the hospital, right? You're like, I have to save this part, you know, my yeah, partner, yeah, yeah. my friend, my spouse, whatever. And then you get there and gone. Right. How right. much of a mind fuck? Oh, uh, yeah. You, I, I would, I would, as the skeptical part. Okay. If this, let's, let's say this, uh, obviously with the show, let's say this happened for real. It happened. Okay. It happens. And then, and then you get there. And then if you're all of a sudden like the cuts go away. I would, I would honestly, my, my brain would go first to like, what did we eat? Did we, was there some weird ass? Oh, okay, like mushrooms or something? Yeah, like something like. Some not, berry. Yeah, some like uh, peyote or like, do we, do we have like some really strong, almost like a poisonous hallucinogen? Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, that would be a mind fuck. That would, oh, that would mess with me so bad. I would also be worried that yeah. the doctors would think I was crazy and they'd just lock me up in a rubber room for the rest of my life. I, like, I calm down. And they're like. Get the get the psych. I, I would I would stop talking about it. Like, uh-huh. like, just like, like make eye contact. Like Mm-mm. we'll talk mm-hmm. about it later. Yep, yep. I would not. In a situation like that, I would definitely not try to convince anyone. Like once it kind of hit me what was happening, uh-huh. as crazy as it was, I would like to think I would just uh, try to accept that no one's going to believe me. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, rather than push it and try to convince people and end up uh, with the psychiatric hold. Oh my god! Just be like, I'm so sorry. I just we we it was crazy. I I would actually say I think we took something, mm-hmm. even if oh, we sorry, hadn't. We were fucked up. Yep. Uh, must have been maybe our maybe the weed uh, was uh, laced. Yeah, yeah, with yeah. Something and I freaked out. Sorry yeah. about that. But interesting that the foot wound remained, and so I feel oh, like yeah. in this story that. That, that thing was real. That very much happened. That was real, not yeah. paranormal. Right. There and, was a real knife. Mm-hmm, and that he stepped on it. I mean, sounds like it was placed in a way that it shouldn't have been. Right. But my presumption is that the mother, when she killed her children, 
as the story goes, yeah. she didn't stab them in their feet. So that's why that one remained, where all the rest of them were inflicted by her. Like, she yeah. did that. Like she didn't stab it in their in his foot. So that's why that one stayed. Yeah, I don't know. Weird, Question huh? Mark? Yeah. Weird. Isn't there a movie like Slaughterhouse-Five? Slaughterhouse. Uh, Isn't that like a Rob Zombie movie a or something? book. There was a Kurt Vonnegut book. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Called Slaughterhouse... 45, maybe? Maybe. God, I read it so long ago. I think it's like I read, in my brain. I, think I read it in like high school, college, somewhere around like. Yeah, Sla <gasps> Slaughterhouse Five. Slaughterhouse, it is Slaughterhouse Five. Or the Children's Crusade. And it's Kurt Vonnegut, right? Yep. Joe, okay, you good scared job. me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it was that little click in my ears. I'm like, woo, 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 woo. Yeah. That was it, a great story. Okay, good, good, yeah. Yeah, I, I am uh, reserving all fan submission stories around camping for summer oh, camp. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. I have like a little stack of them going. To read live? Uh-huh. Oh, cool. I've also, I think oh, yeah. I've decided, there's one story that people write in and ask about the most. There's the eight-foot woman, Popo, <laughs> that one people really love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but on my side, they ask for that guy. It was like the uh, a couple and then like the brother of the, the wife comes yeah. and like the husband is like, you know, he goes away, but really he's not away. And like, there's some weird thing with like his phone and he's digging holes in the yard. Yeah. That story gets asked for all the time. So I'm going to retell that one at summer camp. Maybe I'll tell the eight foot. Uh, yeah. We'll have to think that <gasps> up. Yes. Cause I, I love that story too. People love that story. That's a great one for a camp. <clears throat> yes. And, and I've tried to, oh, sorry. <clears throat> Do you need some water? I, no, I, I, do you I have don't water? know. I feel, yeah, just like the tiniest little bit. I, I'm okay. Yeah. Do you want throat spray? Sure. Okay. Here you go. But, um, all of, all of, these are all of our little tricks. It's the funniest thing when, like, I know we've talked about this a hundred times, but you you sit down and you could do all the things. Like, we've gotten so many tricks and tips from voice coaches and speech therapists, and we could do all of them. There is something about the moment you sit in front of a mic that your body just, like, I don't know, it's like rejecting it. Like, right. like as if it's not normal. So we're just going to say, no, you can't do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've tried, I've tried, yeah, thank you. I've tried of so course. hard to find, uh, oh, like an equivalent spooky story. And we've had other good, what would that, like um, Japanese or, you know, and sometimes like Korean folklore stories, but the, but the eight foot tall woman, there's just something about the rhythm of that story mm -hmm. that is especially spooky. I know. Our nephew loves that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a, a, a great, great story. Anyways, uh, I digress. I have a few pictures uh, from this one. This first is a pic of the desert landscape around Slaughterhouse Canyon. What's that? Is that like a little? It's like an old abandoned uh, homestead. Is it? Is that a hutch? A hutch is a thing no. you put dis dishes in a house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just yeah, it's just some old abandoned home. Actually, this next picture is a, a more close-up picture of a old abandoned home. Oh yeah. Not sure if it's that one. What a crazy like we live in such modern times. Oh man, to, to see stuff like that. I mean, middle you, of nowhere. Well, and you don't know any different. So to you, right. that that's just life. But uh, from our perspective in twenty twenty two, I'm like, God damn, that would be rough. No electricity, no plumbing. Uh, everybody would sleep in like a one room house, oftentimes mm -hmm. where you know there's just a couple little beds in, yeah. in this room where, yeah. where you also have a table to eat, mm -hmm. and you also have, like every the whole family is just yeah. in this room. Yep. In the middle of nowhere, no supplies near you. Man. Wild animals all around. I, I I was flashing on that scene in Westworld when they make it through. And then there's yeah. like there's the that one house like where um Thandy Newton, you know, the, mm -hmm. yeah. there's like a whole scene that happens. I don't want to say anything, oh, yes. like anything yes. like, but yes. that's what I think of. Okay. Uh this next picture, another abandoned building in the Desert Canyon. 
Man. Slaughterhouse Canyon. And then, uh, yeah. I would not want to live in the middle of nowhere like that. Oh, me neither. No way. And then this last one, this is the uh, guys from the 80s hair metal band Slaughter. Nice. It's just an extra little slaughter pick. Very nice. When you started this story, I wrote down that this sounded in terrain and description like Whitebird and Riggins. Oh, yeah. And it made me wonder, like, have there been any prolific hauntings or killings in that area? Because for any serial killers listening, (laughs) what a great place to, like, no one's going to bother you. It's a very, like, don't fucking talk to me. Like, it's everybody keeps to themselves because it's Idaho. So it's very, like, it's... Kind to your neighbors, but also don't talk to me. They're like, And then also I wrote down that there's the Battle of Whitebird. So yeah. in the Battle of Whitebird, there's obviously a lot of deaths between uh, American Indians and... Yeah, U.S. Cavalry. Yeah, so I'm like, oh, there's there's got to be something there, I would think. Yeah, yeah. I should Let's try, get a hometown story, Dan. I know, I should try and look for Idaho County horror stories. And then can I give you one loving criticism yes yes <laughs> you're telling the story you said it was stuck in it and it got stuck in his food <laughs> instead of foot oh no <laughs> i said uh, food instead of foot it got stuck in his food well all right <laughs> did not get stuck in his food it was pretty funny and i i think that you kind of in the moment caught it and sometimes it's just better to power through yeah yeah but i was over here really no i know i did not catch that one that's okay that's funny <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny it happens to the best of us oh, so yeah funny. yeah everything here is uh like, you know, like one take. Yeah, we don't stop and edit or anything. I guess we could if they're like, if well, all of a sudden somebody had like an upset stomach and we needed to Yeah, there were a few out. of those moments. Yeah, of, of like like a, some kind of technical difficulty yeah, or something got issue. messed up. Um, but I, I've thought about that. In the past. I mean, obviously that would extend the recording time. But also, yeah, I think it would take away, I like the rawness of podcasts. Oh, yeah. I like it when there's like, obviously effort put into it. And when you're doing your best, it's kind of like listening to like live music. Yeah. You know, like, uh, like you, everybody's been to a concert. Mm-hmm, there's some notes that aren't, you know, quite the right notes sometimes, or, yeah. you know, th- things, you know, there's some kind of like problem, but you just go with it. And then it's like a, I don't know. It's like, not, I don't want to say more real. No, it's just more like authentic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Organic. Yep. This podcast, this, you know, husband and wife, that kind of like setup, I wouldn't want it to be too polished. No, not at all. You don't want it to be too sloppy. No, not too polished. we keep it together. Mm-hmm. I know when you say, when you compare it to a concert, I think of like how many times I've been to a concert and now having been on tour with a musician and having watched oh, yeah. these things, like like all of a sudden her in-ears aren't working and yeah. you're, you're seeing like, you know, the the sound engineer like running out <laughs> there, swapping them out, like she's all dancing and it's like, yep. let me get these in your ear or like the guitar tech comes out and it's like the string pops and he's like, shit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is. I, I like it when one of like, sometimes a guitarist or, you know, obviously does a little like, like louder, louder, like, like, so, yeah, like yeah, when, yeah. The, when the mix feels weird uh-huh. and then they go to like, whatever that, I think, I guess audio engineer. Joe, what is the, the person in the booth at a concert called? Is it audio yeah. engineer? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Audio engineer. They have like side stage. Yeah. And there's, and sometimes it'll be like out in the crowd, that little booth where yeah. they're, they're watching the show and they'll signal to them yep. like louder. That's, or, yeah. That's just the, that's the engineer. Okay. Yeah. Thank Choo-choo. you. Choo-choo. <laughs> Choo-choo. <laughs> it's such a cool thing, actually, like having had the privilege of touring with Rihanna. That's it was cool. so cool to watch what goes into a load in and a load out. And it was like we would get to said location. Let's just say like uh, I forget like what sports arena we did in Texas. Wow. And, you know, you go in. 
Houston Rockets, is that their basketball team? Yeah. Yeah, okay, it was there. And you go in and there's this one guy, Fitz, I remember, he would walk the perimeter of like the floor seating uh-huh. for the fire marshal. There's all these different rules and laws, and right? right? So because mm-hmm. God forbid there's an emergency, everybody needs to get out. So he would walk the perimeter of the, of the floor, yeah. point out all these things, and then Sully, the audio engineer, he would go to that sound booth in the middle and test all these things. And yeah. before anything else could happen, before you could load in instruments, before you could load in costumes, fucking anything, you were stuck on your tour bus. You were not allowed to leave until they, because you were just in their way. You're waiting for huh. them to do these things. It was really, really cool. And then to watch an entire crew, generally of men, roll in, you know, all those like cases, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, build a stage in, I don't know eight hours mm-hmm. and like get her ready her i mean she always did her own hair and makeup but like doing all the things getting the costumes ready the dancers the band like the opening act we were with calvin harris for a long time cool. it's just like to watch it all it is such a beautiful symphony to watch everybody is like going 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 doing their own thing the catering's coming in it's a yeah. it's a really really cool thing if you ever have the opportunity to do anything like that to be a roadie in any capacity wow. you you gain such an appreciation for the difficulty of the life of touring musicians. Yeah, it's so interesting to me as someone who has toured for so long, but as a comic. Oh, it's so different. I know it's a different world, but I've never actually done shows with a band. So oh, I, yeah. haven't, I haven't seen that process, you know, that don't really know about it. Just, you know, hear about it. Yeah. And that is crazy. Like all the coordination and different roles and so mm-hmm. many people to do things. Yeah. That's so yeah. much more than just showing up and telling jokes. The crew list is like so long. You've got like the travel coordinator, you got the talent coordinator. I mean, there's yeah. just so, so, so many things. And it's, I have such a great deal of respect specifically, yes, for the people who do the physical jobs, but to watch the guy go in and like mark off all the stuff for the fire marshal and then watch the audio engineer, he's in a fucking stadium with no one else around. I don't understand. I mean, Joe, you would get it, but it's like what he hears versus what I would hear and the different mm. like, t- I'm like, I don't even know what you're doing right now. Basically yeah. right now, it looks like you're doing some bullshit made up thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like some nonsense of like, ding, ding, ding. Okay, move it like this, move it like, I'm like, okay, sure. I think your job is a lie. Funny. <laughs> it's like one of those jobs where you're like, I could do that. Uh-huh. Absolutely yeah, yeah. not. Anyways, anyway. So um, at the top of the show, I was telling you that we are going back to McDill Air Force Base. Yeah. And if that doesn't sound familiar to anybody listening, it's because we covered it in a bonus episode. Yeah, one of the Patreon episodes. Yeah, back in August of 21. So if you're a Robert or an Annabelle and you want to dig into the back catalog to to find another McDill Air Force uh, haunting. Um, but in that in that story, in yeah. your version, you told two tales. And one of them was about fire station number one, trying to like jog your memory. Yeah, yeah. We're down in yep. Florida, by yep, the way. I, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I have like a possible ongoing haunting there. Cool. But yeah. So I, I feel like we've had a few military base. We have hauntings. Mm-hmm. That seems yep. like a pretty solid kind of group of people to report on this. Um, but yeah, I, I, for me, I definitely think I mentioned this before. The more I hear about something happening in one place, just like those prison guards, mm-hmm. the more I hear about it, the more validity it carries for me. Yep. Do you yep. feel that same way? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The more people who claim to witness something, yep, the more I think it, uh, I lean towards believing it. Right, right. Especially when it's something that doesn't feel like it's fabricated. It's not like, oh, Dan, just so you know, tonight when you're on duty, watch for this. Like yeah. when it happens organically and they're just like, hey, do you know something happens here? That feels really valid to me. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, here we go. Hello, queen and king of the spooks. Loyal creep, dummy, and Robert here. I had to write today after y'all made every hair on my body stand on end. 
I was telling my aunt about what's been happening at my house, and she told me I had to write to you guys as soon as possible. I'm a new Robert, so I had a lot of bonus episodes to catch up on. I normally listen to your podcasts when I'm cooking or doing work, and you guys stopped me in my tracks recently. I was typing away on my computer when I heard Dan say MacDill Air Force Base. I froze. We are currently stationed there, and the occurrences mm. in the story sounded all too real to me. Turns out, I'm not the only person being haunted at MacDill. Now, we got to start right at the beginning. Literally, since the day I moved into this house, things have started to slowly build. I moved into this house about two years ago, and whatever it is didn't take its time showing up. The first thing that happened wasn't scary in a paranormal way, but rather very annoying and scary in a normal, I don't want to get robbed type of way. Constantly, I would walk into the kitchen and find the back door of the house wide open. I would close it, thinking nothing of it, but a few hours later, or even a few days later, I would find the door open again, even though I'd made sure to lock it. I would push it in, even place a wedge to keep the door in place, but somehow I would walk by and notice the door was open again. It would happen in the morning, the middle of the day, and the middle of the night. The door would be wide open randomly. And instead of thinking anything supernatural was happening, I had a fear that someone would walk into my house and rob me at any time. Remembering that traditionally, when you move into a home, you should bless it, I asked, I asked my aunt for some help. My aunt brought me holy water and I blessed the house. After the blessing, months went by without anything else happening. No open doors, no nothing. At a certain point, I even forgot all about it. The house became so calm and quiet, just how I like it. More than six months went by without anything happening, but there, this wouldn't be a story if it all ended here. After the months of quiet, I noticed I would hear the sound of the doors opening. The front door makes an unmistakable loud noise, and the back door makes a loud click. I heard the sounds of both doors opening. When I checked, the doors were closed, and no one else was home. It was off-putting, but nothing to worry about. Then slowly, I heard more things throughout the day. Some soft banging, which I would blame on my neighbors, and the sound of walking, which I would also say was the neighbors being loud on their side. But that just wasn't the case. It was late one night again when it happened. I was sitting at my computer when all of a sudden, I heard the front door violently shaking, as if someone were trying to get into the house. I raced to the door, but when I got there, it stopped. I looked through the people. No one was there. Then the, the back door began to jiggle. It's a door with a glass panel in the middle, making it easy to see whomever was there. I walked over to the door, looked through the window cautiously, but again, the shaking stopped as soon as I got there, and no one was outside. I thought to myself, okay, that's weird, and sat back down at my desk. And as soon as I did, the front door started to violently shake again, along with the back door. I turned on all the lights, and then I ran to the door, but of course, it stopped. When I looked, no one was there yet again. Every room had to be checked in the house, the bedrooms, the laundry room, every crawl space, and I lit this house up like a Christmas tree. There was no one anywhere to be found, and the noise stopped as soon as I checked. I went back to my room, and of course, the shaking started again. I ran into the kitchen and grabbed a knife. After going to my bedroom, I barricaded the door and put the knife on my nightstand. The next morning, I raced to Walmart and bought security cameras and alarms. If someone ever does come up to my doors, I'm going to see them. If the door opens, I'll see and hear them and be able to get the cops involved. I also blessed the house again. Peace in my house was brought back, but only for a few more months. My parents came to visit me for Thanksgiving and stayed at my house for a month. God bless you. <laughs> they got to have a nice scare as well, and they both got it on the same day. My parents were watching TV in their room, and I was already sleeping in mine. 
both parents heard the door open but knew it couldn't have been my husband because his schedule would keep him at work until 8 a.m. He wouldn't be coming home in the middle of the night for any reason. My dad stood up and checked the front door. He closed the door and checked the lock by unlocking and locking it, just in case. Everything worked as it should. My mom needed the bathroom, so she made her way there as my dad went back to their room. While in there, the bathroom door slowly opened. She saw the door handle turn, and thinking mm-hmm. it was my dad, she called out to hide, called out to him. Realizing it was not my dad, she froze up before running back to bed. It was weird, and now everyone thinks my house is haunted. For me, nothing big had happened since then, but just a few weeks ago, I was walking out of the bathroom, and as I turned to my room, I saw a tall, black figure standing in my way. Oh my God. I didn't want it to know I was scared, so I didn't even break stride, and I walked through it, Ugh. closed my door, lied down in bed, and did some heavy breathing. Then, one week ago, 2 a.m., a light in my room turned itself on. And then the next day, at the exact same time, it turned itself on again. And literally yesterday, my husband saw something, and he's the biggest scaredy cat of all time. I walked out of the bedroom into the bathroom while my husband was going into the kitchen. He was in the middle of the hallway when he saw the bedroom door slowly creak open all on its own after it had been securely closed. He did not like that one bit. Thanks for listening. Keep up the podcast. Your fan, Vale. P.S. My aunt got in contact with a priest and they're coming to my house oh. soon. Wish me luck. Yee. And that's Val? Yeah. V A L E. Vale? Oh. Vale. Vale, maybe. Vale. Uh, yeah, Vale. Man, I mean, <laughs> sucks for you to have to experience that, but thanks for writing the experience down and sharing this because it's an awesome story. Yeah. Like, uh, definitely uh, creeped me out and gave me the chills and just made me think about, like, Mm, that, I mean, doors kind of opening and rattling oftentimes are, are details in some of the stories that I end up telling that, you know, we find on the web and stuff. And sometimes it's just like a passing detail in the midst of just like other paranormal phenomena. And I don't really fixate on it. Yeah. But in this story, it's such a, it's the major thing. Uh-huh. I, mean, I mean, obviously the, the shadow person later is terrifying, but just the door, the violent rattling. I know. That's really disturbing. Like if you and I were sitting watching our uh, TV God. upstairs. And there was a violent rattling of the front door and then no one was there. And then in the middle of night, if we heard that kind of stuff and then went up and it was open or like that, that's disturbing on like a variety of levels where, uh, paranormal, but also it's like, you know, you lock your door because you want to feel secure when you're asleep at night. And if something is opening that door, whatever it is, it just adds another level of like not feeling safe. A hundred percent. And that's Uh. the thing that it's like being a girl. Yeah. And like, you know, just being naturally more vulnerable because I don't have the strength that you have. It's like, if I was home alone. Oh, my God. Working in my office. Yeah. And I heard the, like, that very distinct sound of, like, a door rattling. I would lose my ever-loving mind. That would be enough for me to pack it up and yeah. go stay yeah. in a hotel for the night. What if you were taking a shower? Oh, my God. And the violent door of the bathroom door rattling. And then the bathroom door opened. Uh, considering that I don't lock the bathroom door, that was even more scary. Now Yikes. I feel like I have to lock the bathroom door if you're not home. I would be fr- I that would freak me the hell out. Oh my god, yeah. Noted. <laughs> well, and then you're just extra vulnerable in that just, situation because you're naked. But. Well, and just any door opening on its own. Any, yeah, any door, any door opening on its door. Closet, interior door, exterior door, car door, you the, name it. But the violent rattling, I know, escalates it. Yes. Cuz that you know if, if it does that and then opens, that's extra <sighs> level of terror. Yeah. 
I'm so Vale, we'll take Man, it. Walking through that figure. I know. How brave are you? You just yeah, ran through it. You got to be yeah, fucking yeah. kidding me. I like how she called. I like how she threw her husband under the bus too. I know. Scared uh, cat. Biggest scared cat of all time. <laughs> but what I I want I want an update for sure. I want to know what happens <laughs> yeah. uh, because this is. I, I don't know how long ago this story got sent in, but I am fascinated with this story. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. And it sounds like, I mean, yeah, like, you know, and, and I say this as a like skeptical person, but if, if I experience what you're experiencing right now and I'm not a religious person, but I do contact a church and I yeah. start, I start there, uh, I contact a spiritualist, let's get some sage over here, like all the things. Right. Why wouldn't you just try all the things? All of them. And yep. it's military housing. So there is no GTFO here. Right. Because I mean, I am, I, I believe that you could potentially live off base, but then it's expensive and all the things. It's like, this is the housing that's being provided to you. Yeah. This is part of the package. And I don't think you could put in a, a transfer request. Based <laughs> For on, rattling doors? No. I don't, <laughs> they, think, I don't think they would take that seriously. I was going to say, I think your, uh, your peers and superiors would endlessly harass you yeah like oh I don't think that would ghost bode well for your military career <laughs> i don't think so i don't think so wait 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 imaginary friends did you have one nope i never did you didn't not the, as not active I know as of. your imagination is i have a hard time believing that well i had like i had like uh you know i'd I played by myself a lot and, right, and made little battles. My, yeah, it was, it was a lot of like action figures. It was a lot of scenarios. It was a lot of like, I wouldn't want my friends to come over because you're going to ruin the scenario I've made. Please, I, I get it. These figures set up and they have to do this battle this way and this guy has to win and this guy has to die. Uh -huh. and it's going to be dramatic and this guy's going to save it at the end and we have to move it around in the right sequence. So there was a lot of like imaginary that way, uh -huh. but never like while I'm doing that, talking to Johnny, who's right. doing it with me. Nope. No, so you never like, Invited anybody to the dinner table or anything like that? Nope. No one in my family. If I have, no, Did Donna? I don't remember. I don't remember her doing it either. Huh. Nope. I don't remember our kids having imaginary friends. Monroe, nope. Monroe was very attached to her doll, Layla. Layla. Yeah. But I mean, that was a doll. It wasn't. And she, again, she would play like in her room with her little Shopkins or like Kyler would do Legos. <laughs> yeah. But I don't nope. ever. Well, I, I had an imaginary friend growing up. My mom what? and I. Yeah, I asked my parents about it. My dad says he can't recall, but my mom says, oh, yeah. I don't think you've ever told me this. And so I had an imaginary friend. We were trying to remember its name. My mom is convinced that its name was Pinsy, that I just did like a funny like take on my own name. So this is little, little. Like this You're is, probably like three This or is something like or little two, me, yeah. little toehead, cute, <laughs> bobbling around. Uh, my dad used to sing this song to me, Lindsay Pinsy Puddin' Pie, Kiss the Boys and Made Them Cry, okay, which yep, is yep. A, a song, just yeah. not with my name. Yeah. So I think that's where I got like the Pinsy, like mm, Lindsay Pinsy. Yep. Okay, so it was like my counterpart. And my mom said for a while she had to like put out an extra plate at the dinner table, oh. but that it was very short-lived. Okay. So, but but it's a common thing. I mean, kids talk about imaginary friends yeah. all the time. Yeah. And it's either, I mean, I know if something horrible is going on in the home, it's often a coping mechanism. Yeah. But oftentimes it's just a kid's imagination. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this story like really, really spoke to me because I thought like, what if I did have, like, well, I did have an imaginary friend. What if I was seeing something yeah. as opposed mm -hmm. to just, True. we just write it off. or like, oh, your imagination. Yeah. And this story, I feel like is going to resonate with so many of us. Okay. I'm very excited about it. Hey, you guys. I decided after listening to the many stories other folks have submitted to share one of my most surreal experiences as a child. I have only ever told this story to very close friends of mine who I trust won't take me to Grippy Sock Jail, a.k.a. <laughs> the psychiatric hospital. <laughs> Grippy Sock Jail. 
I happen to love grippy socks, by the way. I love hospital socks so much because even I have trouble accepting that this was an experience that I actually had. I grew up going back and forth from my mom's house in Dayton, Ohio, to my dad's house in Waynesville, Ohio. Waynesville is allegedly the haunted capital of the Midwest. And considering the multiple supernatural experiences I had at both my dad and grandmother's house, I feel confident that they are correct. My dad's house, which he shared with my uncle and baby cousin, was incredibly old, with dark wood paneling, ramshackle wooden floors that creaked with every step, old school doorknobs with the keyhole locks, and dimmer switches in every room that they had put in sometime during the 90s. One day when I was about eight, my mother dropped me off at my dad's house for the weekend before she headed to work. I was a tomboy most of my childhood. I practically lived outside in the dirt, and that day was no different. As was my routine, I dropped my backpack on the floor, ran upstairs to change out of my school clothes, and went to the backyard. The only thing that sucked about going to my dad's was that we weren't very close and there were no other kids on my block, so most of the time, I had to play by myself. My favorite backyard activity was making potions out of mud, water, and assorted weeds or rocks that I would find on the ground. While I was making my potion and humming to myself, I started to feel as though I was being watched. When I looked up, there was a boy about my age, standing on the other side of the fence. He was tan, with bright blue eyes and dirty blonde hair, dressed in shorts and a striped red and blue t-shirt. He didn't seem mean, but I can remember I was a little creeped out, thinking that he was just standing there, fingers laced through the chain link, watching me intently. My creeps dissipated after a few minutes, though, because they were replaced with excitement that I might be able to have a friend. I waved at him, and he gave a shy wave back. I got up from my spot in the dirt and walked over to him. What's your name, I asked, excitedly. He took a few seconds before he replied with a very soft, Robert, but I go by Robbie. I asked him if he had just moved in because I remembered seeing a U-Haul parked in front of the house next door the weekend before. Oh yeah, I moved here with my mom, he said. My excitement grew. I would no longer have to spend my time at my dad's alone. Do you want to come over here and play, I asked. Sure, he replied meekly, cracking a half smile. I met him at the gate and let him in, and we spent the rest of the day making potions and mud pies, catching bugs, talking about school, and making weird noises to make one another laugh. When the sun was setting behind the trees, my dad called for me to come in and wash up for dinner. I said goodbye to my new friend and went inside for the night. From then on, Robbie and I had a routine. Every weekend, I would get dropped off at my dad's house, and every day like clockwork, he would be standing at my back gate waiting for me to let him in. He never went in my yard without me meeting him there first, and I figured it was because he was polite. We would play and talk and laugh for hours, inevitably, until my dad would call me in for dinner. I began to notice some things about Robbie. He always seemed wet, which I assumed meant he had just been outside running around a lot and working up a sweat. I also never met his mom. She never called for him to come into dinner like my dad did, and I never saw her face poking through the curtains to check on him the way my dad and uncle would do although sometimes I would see her getting in her car and going somewhere. And although he was clearly having fun when we were together, he was always very quiet, even when he laughed, almost as if the loudest he could physically speak was a whisper. None of this ever bothered me enough to ask him about it, because I was just so happy to have a real friend, maybe even a best friend. We went on like this for months, well into the summer. It got to the point where every Friday I was impatiently counting down the hours until I got dropped off so I could play with Robbie. Then one Friday evening, I ran out to my backyard to find that Robbie was not standing at my back gate. I was confused, to say the least. 
I'd gotten so used to seeing him standing there, waiting patiently for me to let him into the yard with his fingers twisted up in the chain link. After sitting and waiting on my steps for almost an hour, I decided I would go next door and get him. I walked up to the front I walked up the front stairs to his house, opened the screen door, and knocked. After a couple of minutes with no answer, I knocked again. His mom's car was parked in the street, so I knew they had to be home. After several more minutes, I decided to knock one more time as hard as I could. Maybe they couldn't hear me. I finally heard the lock twist and the door open just a crack. Robbie's mom stood in the crack, poking her head just far enough through that I could see her face. Her hair disheveled, large purple circles set deep in nearly translucent skin. She peered down at me with confusion. She said nothing, just looked at me as if she were waiting for me to speak. Hi, I said. Hello, can I help you? She said, still a confused expression on her face. I was wondering if Robbie could come out and play. I haven't seen him yet today, I said excitedly. The confusion, the confused expression on her face rearranged into that of horror, followed by anger. She gripped the edge of the door till her knuckles turned white. Get away from this house and don't you ever come knocking on this door ever again. Her voice shook. She shut the door hard and on my face was twisted in confusion. I walked back to my house wondering why she was so mad. Maybe Robbie had gotten in trouble and his mom was in a bad mood? The next morning, I heard a knock downstairs and ran to my window to see who it was. It was Robbie's mom. My dad answered the door, and I heard them talking intensely about something. Fifteen minutes later, I watched her walk back over to her own house and then heard my dad walking up the stairs toward my room. He came in and asked if he could talk to me. We sat on my bed. Staring at him, I wondered why he seemed so disturbed. My dad was not a very nice man, and we barely had anything mm. in common. But the way he was acting was somehow more awkward and uncomfortable than usual. You know that lady that lives next door? He asked me. Yeah, I replied. That's Robbie's mom. He pinched the bridge of his nose, took a deep breath. I started to worry. I'm not sure how to say this, or how you even know his name. But Robert passed away three years ago. My stomach dropped. There was no way. I had played with Robbie every weekend for months. <laughs> What do you mean? We play all the time, I said, tears welling in my eyes. It wasn't like my dad to play a practical joke. That was my uncle's thing. And now this is not a funny joke. My dad went on to explain that the boy I knew as Robbie, the boy I had caught lightning bugs with, had told about my pet cats and my school bully, had met me every single Friday at my gate, had drowned a few summers ago on a trip at the lake with his family. After he passed, his mom and dad were never the same, ultimately ended up in divorce. That was why she had moved next door. I spent the next few weekends waiting patiently on my back steps for Robbie to come back. I couldn't accept what my dad had told me. I felt like if I could just see him one more time and ask him, he would tell me I was crazy and laugh and we could go back to playing together like nothing ever happened. But Robbie never came back. And after long enough, I stopped checking the windows or waiting on my steps for him. To this day, I still struggle with these memories. Did I make it all up? Was my childhood so rough that my brain was projecting images of little kids to make me feel less alone and misunderstood? I'd like to think I've made peace of most of it, although even now, 17 years later, I can't shake the feeling that it was all too real. For whatever reason, Robbie chose to make a lonely little misfit kid happy for a summer, and regardless of whether I made him up or his spirit truly befriended me, I always remember the laughter and the fun we had together. Thanks for reading, Ivy. Thanks, Ivy. I mean... How would she know his name though? Like, like, like that's what's so crazy about it. It's like, uh, it's not like, it's not like that. Um, 
It's not like that lady moving in would be like, hey, my name is uh, Linda. I uh, just want you to know that my son Robert died three years ago. I'm very right. sad about it. Please don't talk about it. It's like, you, there's, I don't know. Just that, It's so weird about that story. It's like, how would she know that name? Well, and I then get the, the wet detail. Okay. Yes. I get the feeling that, you know, whatever lake their son passed away on was far removed from this location where she now, li- where the mom mm-hmm, now lives because mm-hmm. the husband and wife, you know, yeah, separated. Yeah. So you, she's probably moving away, trying to get a fresh start. Doesn't right, want to so be in a community that knows her story. Yeah, so she's not going to tell anybody. No. And doesn't, I mean, sounds like she's depressed, sleep deprived. I mean, the circles under the eyes. Like, yeah. She's not really leaving her house altogether that often. And what? And, and Ivy's dad didn't know. Right. He seems just as shocked. And where did Robbie go? Why did Robbie just stop showing up? I don't know. And is it that thing of like her childhood was fucking shit? So instead of manifesting something herself, did Mm -hmm. he find her in an effort to ease her? I don't know. Was he hoping that she would be able to tell his mom like, I'm okay? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't sound like, and it doesn't sound like the mom, based on the mom's reaction to the story, it doesn't sound like she was seeing his ghost. No, and clearly not open to like, right? Because me, I'm like, Man. I want to talk to your kid. Yeah, yeah, I want to yeah, know, yeah. like, yeah, exactly. Can you give a message to him? Does he have a message for me? Like, I right. am desperate. However, I will say, in this story, it said that you know she that Robbie had passed away three years ago. At a certain point, you're just trying to heal. Yeah, and, so, and I can't imagine what that feels fuck. like, just the whole process. I can't imagine what any of it feels like. No, I mean, a parent should never have to bury a child. Yeah, and, and I'm sure it's so you know different for everybody who, who has to go through that terrible yeah. tragedy. Yeah, which is so interesting. Yeah. It really, it like stuck with me for so long. I was thinking about our neighbors, they have kids. And mm-hmm. I was thinking about our kids when they're little and how many times you do look out the window and you just see them playing. Right. And they are like living in their own little world, imaginary friend or otherwise. Yeah, yeah. It's like all the times that you were building those stories with your GI Joes, at any point, like, could you, could there have been something else there with you, like also playing the game? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, and that's so wild because there was like, you know, like, uh, Little kids who would pop into my life like briefly. Like uh, right. I remember this. There was this neighbor kid, Levi. He didn't live there very long. He's I don't know. You know, it's too long ago, and I was too young to, to even know who his parents were. Right. But I just remember. It's like uh, remember that you know he moved in next door to us for I don't know three months, mm-hmm. four months. Maybe it was just a summer. Actually, maybe it was just a summer between like third and fourth grade, and then he was gone. Yeah. And uh, but my parents, you know remembered Levi mm-hmm. but that would be so interesting to have like these experiences of like new kid moves in and then I'm sometimes playing with Levi and we'll ride our bikes around the block and then you know and then Levi goes away and then to have this thing of like hey mom I'm gonna go play with Levi again and, like who you know Levi the kid next door there's no kid next door right like if they seem so real uh-huh. yeah that would be wild yeah. uh-huh yeah when I was a kid my I played a lot of Barbies my brother had GI Joes and my go-to storyline was what Ever had happened on Doogie Hauser the week before. Hilarious. You just re- you just like mm-hmm. adapt the Doogie Hauser storyline to your doll situation. Mm-hmm. I would adapt it to my life too. I would <laughs> I was a big I was a big I was such Neil Patrick Harris. I was such an awkward kid from like specifically third and fourth grade. Mm-hmm. I got befriended by a cool kid in fifth grade, which changed the course of my life. Kind of a mean cool kid though, but yes. Yeah. In the end she sucked. Yeah. But it but it I was no longer like the fat dorky nerd. And I like got to shift out of that, but I was so desperate for friends. But this is like crazy. Fourth grade, like how old are you? 11, 12? I was too yeah, old to 11, be. Not even like uh, 10, I think. I was too old or nine to or 10, be, yeah. let's see, I turned 13 in seventh. So 
Yeah. Yeah. And then 12 and six and then 11 and fifth and then yeah, 10, 10 and fourth. Yeah. Too old to be like making up blatant lies. Mm-hmm. I like whatever happened on Doogie Howser. Like there was this one episode. This is so embarrassing. This is so great. Uh, my godmother, Angie, had given me this silver necklace that had like a basically like what looked like a little silver Hershey kiss on the end. Okay. Okay. She gave it to me. I don't know why. I don't know if she'd gone to Hershey, Pennsylvania. Right. She gave it to me. We were pretty close. I go to school the next day with it and people are like, oh, who gave that to you? I'm like, oh, my boyfriend. Oh. And uh uh-huh. I make up this whole story about this boy. And that week on Doogie Howser, Doogie Howser had come home from a very long shift at the hospital and went into his bathroom and fell asleep there. And if you don't know Doogie Howser, he was a very young doctor. He was a child prodigy who became a a very young doctor. Okay. Look it up. Look it up. I believe there's a remake of it as well with a female doctor. Oh, okay. So I like told, I was like, oh, I was like, well, like my boyfriend and like he lives in like this big like house. I think I might've even called it a castle. He's a young doctor. I, I don't know if I said he was a doctor. I was like, you know, I'm like, but I was there. And like, he, he sometimes he he's so tired. He falls asleep on the toilet and I find him there. People were like, that's huh? what happened on Doogie Howser last night. <laughs> I was so desperate to like fit in and yeah. everybody was getting boyfriends and nobody liked me. Oh man. Yep. The pressures of fourth grade. Fourth grade, man. Meanwhile, I was in my own little world in fourth grade. I didn't care what was going on. Oh. I was like, I gotta, get, I gotta get home quick. I got a G.I. Joe battle to carry out. <laughs> I think it's just because- D- Duke's not gonna win this war by himself. <laughs> Duke? Who's yeah. Duke? He's one of the main G.I. Joes. Oh, I don't know my G.I. Joes. <laughs> Stor- Storm Shadow. Storm Shadow has to you know get in on the action. I got to tell you, I don't know any of the G.I. Joe characters. I don't know that I've ever seen any of like the movies mm. or even it was a cartoon, right? Yeah, it was a cartoon, like a weekly, like an after school cartoon. My or pa- daily, sorry. My parents were so anti-gun growing up oh. that I don't you think- we, G.I. Joe? I don't think so. Oh. We weren't allowed to have water guns. Eesh. My pa- like, says my dad who now has like a sawed off shotgun. <laughs> I, know, I think that's like his only thing, the only one though. <laughs> no, it's not sawed off. It's not sawed off. Sawed off shotguns are illegal. He has, he has a pump ashing 12 gauge <laughs> that, he's, that he's proud of. Yeah, he has a couple pistols. Oh, okay. It's pretty funny. Anyways, a little insight into what a weird, nerdy <laughs> loser kid I was. That's what I think about when I think of imaginary friends. I'm like, oh man, I let that go on for way too long. <laughs> uh, do you want to do some Annabelle shout outs or do you I, want me to start? No, I'll go first. Uh, I'd like to thank the following Annabelles for uh, making it possible to support those in Ukraine this month. Spoopy Edric, Jen Casey Romer, Rachel Daniels, Stephanie Naylor, Leandra Ray, Becca Toledo, Cody Hilliard, Nicholas Anderson, Melissa Parks, Olivia Dalrymple, your boy Nate, Mark Corbelli, Joyce Vassar, Russell Gammon, Keegan Brown, Jill Kerrigan, Shelby Shelby Mellard. Are you related to Doug Mellard? Valerie Rajathi, Nicholas C. Ivers, Caitlin Flata, Ashley Valdez, Jasmine Johnson, Luke and Heather Roberts, Shaylee Broomer, Cody Cochran, and Kristen Goldner. And I would like to thank the following Annabelles as well. Jacob Kraus, Lindsay Witt, Heather Seamuth Johnson, Brian B., a.k.a. Inky Scholar. <laughs> uh, uh, Cryo Talks Gaming. It's like C-R-Y-O-T-O-X-X, Cryo Talks Gaming. Cryo Talks, yeah. Alex, uh, with two L's, uh, Lillen Wright, Charles Morgan, Lisa Magana, Madison Amy, Afraid-ish podcast. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, Marisol, Kelsey Chase, Kelly Lieber, or Liber, Heli, uh, Haley Stevens, Debbie Weaver, 
Adriana Gonzalez, Melissa Rotino, Austin Hillebrecht, Rope, Edgar A. Perry, Keith Crispin, Rachel Moon, Terry Young, and Justin Langford. I want to change my name. It's Moon. We hear so many. I want to be Schuler Moon. We had a Schuler who's actually, Moon. we said Schuler, but I guess it's actually Skyler, but like S C H U L Y E R Moon. I want to be Schuler Moon. I think you should be Raven Moonshadow. Oh. Or, you know, whatever. Um, do you have some spoopy shout outs? I do. Thank you for asking. To Frankie from Brittany, happy 20th anniversary. I love wow. you. To Colton Curtis from your mom, Dina, happy birthday. To Ryan and Lauren from Nicole, happy sixth anniversary. To Kelsey from KC, also happy anniversary. And to Dennis the Sicilian from Faith, just saying hi. <laughs> Dennis the Sicilian. Dennis. I guess it's like a mob character. I know. I like it. Uh, that's our show. Thanks for the ratings and reviews, uh, creeps and peepers. Everywhere you can leave ratings and reviews, they do help us find new listeners, and we appreciate it so much. Thanks for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Those are the ones that Lindsay reads, and we love the ones you send in. You can email us for everything else at info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thanks to Logan Keith and Liz Hernandez for their work on social media. And to Logan again for running badmagicmerch.com. And thanks to Joe Paisley for producing and directing today, for knowing who, uh, you know, the helping us with the Kurt Vonnegut book today. Good job, Joe. Uh, Slaughterhouse Five. Zach Cohen for custom soundbed creation. Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails. And to book editor Drew Atana for polishing and preparing the listener stories for book number three. Thanks to producer Sarah Finch for finding the first story I told today and to producer Sophie Evans for finding the second. Subscribe to Bad Magic Productions on YouTube if you want to watch this show in addition to listening. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram if you want more content, at Scared to Death Podcast. And we have a private Facebook group, Creeps and Peepers Full of Horror Lovers. Thank you to Liz Hernandez for moderating. And if you don't want to hear any ads, if you want monthly bonus episodes, uh, check out our Patreon and get the entire catalog ad-free and more. Enjoy your nightmares, Creeps and Peepers. Hope you were scared to death. Bye! If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through, but have no home here within scared to death. Add Magic Productions. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.